The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. We are going to read from Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. The old saying, you can't see the forest for the trees, is true of many things in our daily lives. And it is certainly true in the spiritual life of man as well. All over the world, there are trees that have been planted by people throughout the ages. They have actually stolen away man's ability to perceive what the root of the problem between God and man is. Every new religion introduced is like a tree that man may look at and say, this is the answer. And every offshoot of every religion only further blocks the view of the main issue. People go from tree to tree or even from branch to branch looking at what they can do to be pleasing to God. But the main subject, the overall forest, is never considered. The same is also true with the Bible. The Bible talks about salvation, and so we will talk about it today as well. But what people think about salvation as defined in the Bible can be as far from the main issue as are the teachings of Buddha. This doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the contents of the Bible. Rather, it means that the focus is on a lesser point and it therefore misses the main point. To ensure that that would not be the case, with the announcement to Joseph of the coming of Jesus, the angel was clear, precise, and succinct in his words. There is one main subject, a problem, that is addressed by the Bible that needs to be tended to. And there is one man who came to tend to it. Our text verse comes from 1 Corinthians 15. The main subject that I'm referring to is said several times in these words. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul's words get to the heart of the issue, and they tell what the effect of dealing with that issue is. If it isn't dealt with, a completely different outcome will be the result. All of this is minutely explained throughout the Bible. We just need to make sure that the main issue is not obscured. Once it is seen for what it is, then understanding the remedy for it is the most wonderful thing a person can ever grasp. We look at the cross and we know that Jesus died for us, but we may not appreciate the magnitude of the event. God himself was willing to deal with the problem so that we could be handed the blessing. The story of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is the most important story in human history. It is so important that God has put the total focus of his word on this event. And so it is good for us to come together each year and highlight this most magnificent occurrence. There is passion, pain, and death involved. And there is a price that God did not need to pay. And yet he voluntarily accomplished this through Jesus Christ in order to bring us back to himself. May we consider this and remember with awe and appreciation what occurred when Jesus was nailed to the cross of Calvary, when he was buried, and when he rose again. Let us consider this most incredible event in all of human history. The revealing of the majesty and perfection of God in Christ is to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got three thoughts for you today. A couple of them are rather technical, but it needs to be that way. The first is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Does it seem odd that on the resurrection day we would begin with the birth announcement of Jesus? But considering that the words in Matthew 1 are the first recorded words in the New Testament of one individual speaking to another, and considering that those words explain the nature of and reason for Jesus' coming, it should no longer be surprising. Of his nature, the text is clear. The child in Mary's womb was conceived of the Holy Spirit, meaning the Spirit of God. How the Spirit is presented in Scripture should lead a person to no other conclusion. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. For example, it says this in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God is who God is. But more, He is God made known in an expressible way. To get an understanding of this, we can evaluate the word translated as spirit. In Hebrew, it is ruach. Being translated as spirit, one would think it is used specifically in reference to the spirit of a being, be it God, man, or animal. But the word is variously translated. It also means wind, breath, and spirit, and also it's translated other ways depending on the context. The same is true with the Greek word pneuma. It is also translated as wind, breath, and spirit. If one thinks of breath, that is an extension of the life of a person. A person without breath is dead. Wind is an extension of something else. There wouldn't be wind unless something caused it to go forth. Jesus speaks about that in John chapter 3. These physical expressions of the words ruach and pneuma are given to help us understand what is being conveyed when we consider what the spirit of a being is. 
A review of the phrase, my spirit, from the Old Testament gives us insights into what is being said concerning the spirit of man or of God. The spirit of man can be afflicted. That's found in Job. It can be entrusted to another. That's found in Psalm 31. It can seek out something, found in Isaiah, and so on. Such descriptions are expressions of who the person is, what the person is feeling, and so on. The same is true with God. In Genesis 1, the Spirit of God is God expressing himself as he hovered over the face of the waters. The word translated as hovered comes from a root signifying to brood. It was as if God was fluttering over his creation, beginning to express himself in it. This would be the first note of what we term general revelation found in Scripture. This is a way of God expressing himself in the creation so that we can understand things about him, meaning what he is like. In Genesis 6 verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. The words reveal an expression of God, telling us of his nature toward the wickedness of man. In 2 Samuel 23, it says the following. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. This means that the spirit of the Lord was expressing himself through David. It is an example of special revelation a way of the Lord specially revealing himself. It is something that cannot be known or deduced from general revelation, but it must be imparted by God directly from himself. Thus, the term Holy Spirit is referring to the Spirit of God, but it is expressing the Spirit of God in a particular manner. The word Kodesh, or holy, signifies sacredness and apartness. A sanctuary is set apart as a place for the things of God. Holy people are set apart from what is common or profane. Thus, the Holy Spirit is the sacredness and apartness of God in relation to other things. For example, after David sinned, he wrote this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit had been imparted to David. But because of his sin, he was concerned that God would remove himself, meaning his spirit, from him. As noted before, the spirit of God is who God is. In asking for God to not take his Holy Spirit from him, David was asking him to not remove the expression of his presence from him. As God is omnipresent, he cannot actually be removed from David in the absolute sense. But it is the special presence and expression of himself that had been imparted to David that he was concerned with. Now we come full circle to the statement of the angel to Joseph. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The sacredness and apartness of God's spirit this special presence of God is the instrument of conception in the womb of Mary. The word used to describe this is the verb genao. It means to beget, to procreate a descendant. It is the same word used 40 times in the genealogical listing from Matthew 1, 2 through 16. One person begetting the next, beginning with Abraham and ending with Jesus. How do I know it's 40 times? Because I counted them. 
I've never read a commentary that there are exactly 40 instances of that word in that passage, but sure enough, 40. In Matthew 1.20, we have something similar too, but far more intimate than what was said in Genesis 1 verse 2. There, God was hovering over the waters, preparing to express himself in creation in a general way. However, in Matthew 1.20, God's Holy Spirit would actually beget a child. This then is not general revelation, but it is special revelation. And I would say it is special revelation par excellence. God is personally and intimately revealing himself to the world in a unique way. Luke's record of the account provides another point of view. This is from Luke 1.35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. In understanding these things, we can then make several logical deductions concerning what is being said. It is the heart of what God is telling us in this word. One, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a human being. As all things beget after their own kind, that's recorded in Genesis 1, then this child is a human being. Two, the Holy Spirit, the sacredness and apartness of God is the father of this child. As all things beget after their own kind, then this child is God. These are obvious conclusions that can and must be made from what we are being told in the text. This coming child who had been prophesied since the very beginning of man's need for him is to be God incarnate, the God-man. To say otherwise would be to ignore the very purpose of using the word ganao 40 times in a row from Abraham to Jesus. The 40th time it said, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. The wording plainly indicates that Jesus was born of Mary, but it in no way implies that he was begotten of Jacob. Rather, he is begotten of the Holy Spirit and of Mary. Despite the clear and unambiguous meaning of what is conveyed there, the nature of Jesus Christ being the God-man is often denied as such. I was talking to somebody during the break here who was talking to a Jehovah's Witness who denies this. I feel very bad for them because that is anathema. But the record stands and it is verified in Matthew's words which explain what the angel had told Joseph from Matthew 1. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated, God with us. The type was given to direct us to the antitype. Someone would be named Emmanuel, indicating that the parents believed that God was with them and their people. However, the prophecy anticipating the fulfillment in the Messiah wasn't merely indicating that God was with the people in a general way, but in a specific way. These words are not being used as a name, but as an explanation of the nature of Jesus. The one conceived of the Holy Spirit, he is the one that is being referred to here. God entered into a special relationship with his creation, meaning humanity, uniting with it. The magnitude and importance of this are then realized in what Jesus was born to do. You are he who took me out of the womb, 
and you have been with me all the way. You shall deliver me from the tomb. Death will be defeated in that day. I was cast upon you from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. To you, O king of infinite worth, the nations shall stream, and the peoples applaud. You are enthroned in the praise of Israel. They cried to you and were delivered in that day. Now to the nations this story we tell, that you, O God, have provided the way. Our second thought today is, he will save his people. The reason why we want to focus on the conception and birth of Jesus is to explain the life of Jesus. John said in his gospel narrative from John 21, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. As John wrote an entire gospel about Jesus, and as he concluded his gospel with these words, we can conclude that Jesus did a great deal of things. But everything recorded about Jesus had to have an initial reason for it to be. How would you explain what God was going to do in the person of Jesus as that initial thought? We find the answer right in the text itself. After the angel explained that Jesus would be both God and human, he continued by saying he would be a male, and she will bring forth a son. Until this point, Joseph could not have known that. All he could have known was that Mary was pregnant, and she claimed that she was a virgin and that her child would be the son of God. Joseph obviously didn't believe this because the Bible says that he was minded to put her away secretly. However, with the angel's words to Joseph, the matter is now settled. He would be both a human male and the son of God. And as a summary of what he would come to do, the brief words of the angel continue saying, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. The name is designated by God to reflect the nature of the person. In Greek, the name is Isus, but the name would have been conveyed to Joseph in Hebrew, Yeshua. This needs to be explained, though. The Greek name Isus is transliterated from the Hebrew Yehoshua or Joshua. That is derived from the divine name Yehovah and Yasha, which means to save. Combined, the name means the Lord is salvation. However, it is generally but not universally accepted that the shortened form of Yehoshua is what the angel spoke to Joseph, Yeshua. This simply means he will save. Thus, as often occurs in the Bible, at the naming of a child, a pun is made. And you shall call his name, he will save, for he will save his people. An obvious question that arises is, what do the words his people signify? It could be speaking of a person belonging to a group, such as Charlie is an American, or it could be referring to a group belonging to another, such as these are God's people. For example, the latter is used in Luke chapter 1, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. The answer, based on a reading of the New Testament, must be the latter. For example, John says the following in John chapter 1, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, 
to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These and other verses show that his people is referring to those who belong to him. As he is God, it is referring to any who are God's through him. Though this is inclusive of Israel, it is not limited to them. As Paul says in Romans 9, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Unless Joseph was a true scholar of the words of scripture, he probably would not have known such references as Paul cites here. But it was revealed at various times in the Jewish scriptures, such as Job's inclusion in the Hebrew Old Testament, even though he was a Gentile. Isaiah stated it even more explicitly. He says, And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Understanding these things, that Jesus is God incarnate and that he came to save his people, we are left with a final thought to consider from the words of the angel. What a wonderful, marvelous thing God has done. He has brought us back to himself this day. Through the giving of Jesus, his only begotten son, we have the smooth path. He has paved the way. In him is found life and length of days. To him we look and call out his name. To God through Jesus we shall give all our praise. He has removed our guilt and taken away our shame. Praise God, all you saints of his, praise him today. Rejoice in the marvelous thing he has done. God himself has made the way through the precious gift of Jesus, his only begotten son. Our third thought today is from their sins. The idea of salvation can mean various things in scripture. One can be saved from his enemies in battle or saved from oppression or from famine, violence, injustice, or death. Because the Hebrew writings focus so much on salvation from such physical things as these, and because the writings are so heavily focused on the people of Israel, it would be only natural for them to assume that the Lord was going to send the Messiah to deliver them in such a manner. But the underlying problem that Scripture focuses on, and which the many battles and trials of Israel only typologically represented, is the problem of sin. Standing back and taking a global look at Scripture, this becomes perfectly evident. The first problem introduced in Scripture is sin. The reason for the destruction of the entire world, apart from Noah and his family, was sin. The introduction of the Law of Moses was to highlight sin. 
detailing the conquest of Canaan and the eradication of the inhabitants in the land was because of their sin. The record of the judges, kings of Israel, and the people continuously highlights their lives in relation to sin. The writings of the prophets regarding the state of the people time and time again were to highlight their sin. It is the primary issue found in Scripture when properly considered. If the angel came to Joseph and told him that the child would save his people and stop there, Joseph would probably have thought, Woo! Israel's going to be freed from her enemies. Those who ruled over them physically oppressed them and of whom they were afraid in many, many ways would have been on the mind of Joseph and anyone else in Israel. The angel could not just say that this child would save them. Rather, he had to explain what that meant, because a greater enemy stood against the people. The angel's explanation comes in four words in the Greek, which equate to three words in our translation. Apoton hamartion auton, from their sins. The child was sent to save his people from their sins. This is what God directed the angel to say. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that is all he said. If Joseph sat down and thought about the magnitude of those words, he would have been as amazed as we are today. God was entering into the stream of human existence in order to save his people from their sins. The reason why this is such an incredible statement is because Israel was ostensibly saved from their sins. The law of Moses provided for that. How could they need to be saved from their sins if the law, at least in part, was intended to save them? To this day, observant Jews look at the law as fully capable of doing this. And unfortunately, many people in supposed Christian churches believe this as well. If that was true, the record of Israel's history would have been completely different. In fact, there would have been no need for a Messiah. Israel, through the law, would have been the Messiah. The promises of the law of Moses tell of the exaltation of Israel for obedience. Does one need a Messiah if they're already in a place of exaltation? One only needs a Messiah to be saved. Who needs to be saved if sin is dealt with, the people are secure and free from oppression, and they have been accepted by God? This was an ideal of the law that was never realized. Hence, Israel anticipated the coming of a Messiah. But their thoughts concerning him and his coming were skewed. They failed to consider the first words concerning sin that are recorded in Scripture. From Genesis 2, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Sin results in death. Man sinned, and thus he died. The spirit of the man was separated from God, spiritual death. Man's separation from God led to physical death. If the law of Moses could correct that, then the people would no longer die, would they? That is even explicitly stated in the law itself. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. But every person in Israel who was there at the giving of the law died. 
And every person since that time also died with the exception of Elijah who was taken to heaven in a chariot. Thus they needed salvation from sin that the law could not provide, at least not by themselves. It is this thought that highlights the enormity of what God in Christ would do. Suppose someone under the law actually did what the law demanded, year after year, never sinning. He fulfilled every precept of the law on his own. Would that be sufficient to save Israel? No, he would only save himself. The same is true if lots of people never sinned under the law. They would only be able to save themselves, and their lives under the law would only continue until they sinned, at which time they would die. Thus, they would not really have saved themselves. Rather, they would have merely prolonged their existence. But more, there is the problem of original sin. Suppose a person didn't sin under the law for a long, long time. If he confusedly thought, I'm tired of living under the law, and so I'm going to die by my own hand so that I don't have to live under the law anymore, then he would obviously not continue to live. But more, he would not come back to life free from the constraint of the law. This is because he did, in fact, have original sin. He may have lived a long time because he never broke the law, but he would remain dead, spiritually separated from God because of the sin in him that occurred apart from the law. Paul explains how this is by using the example of someone who is never under the law from Romans 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, here it is, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So, because of sin, death reigned in all men until the time of Moses. With the introduction of the Mosaic law, a provision for life was given. But if that life ended... The original sin in him still kept that person from restoration with God and thus from resurrecting. All of this is tied up in the angel's words that Jesus would save his people from their sins. We know this is so because it has already been established that his people is referring to those who are his through what he would accomplish, not merely the nation of Israel. God himself would have to enter into the stream of human existence in order to save his people. In this occurrence, the child to be born would cut the line of sin that began in Adam. He would be born without sin. And as he was born to Mary, the espoused bride of Joseph, he was born under the law. Think on that for a moment. The law that he gave to Israel and which no person under that law had been able to fulfill, testified to by their continued deaths, is the burden that he placed himself under. As he was born without sin, he could, like Adam, potentially live forever. Unlike Adam, however, he didn't have one simple command to obey. Rather, he had the entire Mosaic Code to live out without erring even once. As long as he continued to do this, he would not die, meaning spiritual death leading to physical death. Because, as Leviticus 18.5 noted, the man who did the things of the law would live. This was the task set before him. 
This then is the purpose of the Gospels. They are not merely provided to show us what Jesus came to do, but what he did. They are a written testimony to the life of the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. So confident was he in this that he told this to Israel. John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. Then the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the father knows me, even so, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them I must also bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. If Christ laid down his life knowing that he had the power to take it again, then he knew that he was in a state of sinless perfection. And more, he didn't just say that he would lay down his life, but that he would do it for his sheep. The meaning is obvious. His death would be for the rescuing of their lives, of our lives. He was telling them that the law of Moses, with its inability to save the people from death, was only a foreshadowing of what he came to do. In his perfect life and subsequent death, the law would be considered fulfilled in him. This could not be the case with a person who bore original sin. His eventual death would bear that stain of original sin. Jesus, on the other hand, died in sinless perfection, fulfilling the law. In this fulfillment, God, through him, offers a new covenant. What is behind this thought requires a thorough study of the book of Hebrews. But chapter 7, verses 11 through 28 give the gist of it. Within those verses, the most precise explanation is found in verses 11 through 19. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, the law of Moses, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Thank God for Jesus Christ. This is the error in thinking possessed by observant Jews and those Gentiles who put themselves under the law of Moses. 
They reject the only hope for rescue from sin. Sin is the problem. All of the other things we think we need deliverance from are merely a part of the fallen world. We think we need rescue from enemies, from debt, from an abusive father, a tedious job, or whatever else is harming a hope-for state of contentment. But it is sin leading to death that we need deliverance from. Without that, there can never be a state of contentment in our lives. This is what God came to do when he united with humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what he offers to anyone who will accept the premise that he has done just that. Entrance into the new covenant is what brings freedom from sin, and it can only, only, only be obtained through Christ Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It makes no sense to assume that God has made any other path to restore man to himself. This is why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How coincidental that Don and Jody came back from overseas and brought that tapestry right there, quoting John 14, 6. Sin. Sin is the problem. If sin is not addressed, then there can be no restoration. But God in Christ has made the way available for us. He himself has dealt with the sin issue, and all he asks is for us to believe, as is stated in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ was buried. Christ rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is the message that we proclaim. God in Christ has done it. He alone prevailed over sin because he had no sin. And he offers his sinless perfection to anyone who will come to him by faith. In Christ is the gift of God. A gift cannot be earned. The grace of God. Grace is unmerited favor. The mercy of God. He withholds what we deserve because it has already been meted out in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' dying humanity, God poured out all of his wrath on the sins of mankind. Think of it. In the flood of Noah, the entire world was destroyed because of God's wrath at sin. And yet, that outpouring was insufficient to do what the cross of Jesus Christ accomplished. An entire world full of people perished, and yet the sin debt remained unpaid. But in the giving of Jesus, it is finished. The proof of that is an empty tomb and a risen Savior. Thank God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we submit to him and be cleansed according to the promise of God that is realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has saved his people from their sins. Hallelujah, Hallelujah. and amen. amen. What a great and wonderful Savior we serve. What a beautiful thing that God has done. God. People, you know, I, I've said this once before. I read an article where an atheist said that the cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest act of cosmic child abuse. Imagine that. He misunderstands what the nature of Jesus Christ is. God himself united with human flesh. That's not child abuse. That is God redeeming the world unto himself through humanity. He himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ. I lay down my life 
of my own accord. I take it up of my own accord. People misunderstand the deity of Jesus Christ and they are condemned because of it. Imagine that. Come to Jesus Christ. He's done everything necessary for you if you'll just believe. This is the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. Our closing verse comes from John 1. It is verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Next week is Joshua 19, 10 through 16. You will probably be amazed when the sermon is done. It's entitled The Inheritance of Zebulun. That'll be our 39th Joshua sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now I have a question for you today and I'm not giving anything out. As a matter of fact, if you get this wrong, you're going to get beaten with a wet noodle. (laughs) Finish this sentence. He is risen. Nobody gets the wet noodle. Indeed he is. This is entitled A Celebration of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel which was preached to you. It is also the one you received and on which you stand. It is the gospel of salvation, providing life that's new and which will carry you to the promised holy land. What is delivered to you is what was before received, that Christ died for our sins according to God's word. He was buried and he rose, and so we have believed, and many witnesses testify to this message you have heard. Now, if Christ has preached that he has risen from the dead, how can some among you say the resurrection isn't true? If there is no resurrection after Christ was crucified and bled, then our faith as well as yours is certainly askew. And if so, we are found false witnesses of God because we have wrongly testified of this mighty deed and our faith is futile. No heavenly streets we will trod and we are still dead in our sins, fallen Adam's seed. Even more, those who have fallen asleep in the Lord are gone and we are the most pitiable creatures the world could ever look upon. But indeed, Christ is risen from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And as death came through one man, Adam, our federal head, so Christ will make all alive. Our souls he will keep. There is an order to the resurrection call. Christ was first, the pattern for the rest when he comes. When he does, he will make a shout out to us all, and we will rise as if to the sound of heavenly battle drums. Then comes the time when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, when all rule, authority, and power have come to an end. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, never more to bother. Then the Son will to the Father eternal rule extend. But you ask, what will we be like after our time of sleep, after we have been buried in corruption's pit so deep? Our body is sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. The resurrection story. The first man, Adam, became a living being, it is true. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, life to me and you. And as was the man of dust created so long ago, so are those likened unto him, also made of dust. And as is the man, the Lord from heaven, that you know, that we shall bear his image for eternity 
just as we've discussed. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit that which is incorrupt. But we shall all be changed, and so, heavenly streets we will trod. In the twinkling of an eye, the change will be abrupt. When the last trumpet sounds, we will be taken to glory. We shall all be changed. Completion of the gospel story. Where, O death, oh, where is your sting? When Christ our Savior, us to himself does he bring. Where, O Hades, oh, where is your victory? When Christ translates his children to eternal glory. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord. My beloved brethren, be steadfast in all you've heard and saw and cling confidently to God's eternal word. Know for certain that your labor is not in vain. Be of good cheer. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day we remember each year. Thank you for the marvel and the majesty of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Thank you for the sure hope we possess of eternal life in your presence because of the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, if there's anybody that ever tunes into this sermon that does not have a personal relationship with you because he simply believed the gospel, I would pray that you wouldn't give him a moment of sleep, not in his heart, not in his mind, not in his body, until he is drawn to you, to come to you and to yield himself to you through the giving of your son and believe the gospel. Lord, thank you that we can meet together in this nation, in this world, and celebrate this most wonderful of events, the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We glorify you through him. It's in his name we do. Amen.